Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. This is the Leader's Guide for Justice and Mercy. I'll be discussing Lesson 8 and 9, beginning on page 45. It's time to talk about the justice of God. Look at the second italicized paragraph. We are going to consider what has been revealed to us from heaven. God has spoken to us about his character. He is good and just, and he wants us to be like him. Our behavior is to be like our just God's behavior. So he wants us to be like him, but the leaders of Israel were not. So we're going to go to the first question. What is the difference between the leaders and Micah? Ask someone to share what they have in the leaders column. From Micah 3, 1 and 2, I have that the leaders should know justice, but they hate good and love evil, and they are tearing the skin off the people. They are oppressing them. And they also are described in Micah 3 as detesting justice. They make crooked that which is straight. They build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. But Micah, you can have the same person who answered the leaders do the Micah side if you want to, um, just to get things moving um, with this lesson, or you can call on somebody else. Um, so Micah is not like that. He is filled with power, filled with the Spirit of the Lord, filled with justice and might. So just to um, reply and further explain what's going on with Micah, it's in the middle of the second, I mean, the next paragraph. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Micah, making him courageous and loud and clear. So let's examine the justice of God himself, and then we will see how we can be like him. So most of this lesson, we are looking at the justice of God. Yes, uh, and our and how we can be like him. Go around the circle with the next verses. Uh, note what these verses tell us about God's character. Deuteronomy 4, 8. God gave the nation of Israel statutes and righteous judgments. He gave them his ways and commands, which are righteous. He gave them for our good. Um, he is the lawgiver. He is righteous. He is wise. These are responses that I had towards that verse. God cares. He gave us instruction that we needed. And he wants us to be like him. He's involved. The instructions show his involvement in our lives. So that's not specifically from the verse. I mean, it's not written in the Bible, but those were my um reactions and summaries of God's character, which is not required from the ladies. But if they wrote something like that, they could. Okay, Psalm 9-4, God is on his throne and judges in righteousness. And he has maintained David's right and his cause. I sat on that phrase for a little bit. Um, that is an evidence of God's judging in righteousness. He knows what David was doing. So my summary of that phrase was that God protected 
and supported and encouraged David in his right cause. David was doing the right thing and he knew the Lord was with him and for him. The ladies did not have to say that. They could have just written the verse and they probably did and that's fine. Uh, top of page 46. Isaiah 33:22. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So have someone read this, the next sentence after those three verses have been given. This next sentence, and you can say this, is a summary of those previous three verses and what we would have learned from them. God is the ruler, lawgiver, judge of the world, imposing law with promises of reward and punishment. You could ask if you want to. Does anyone want to comment on these truths? Now, if you've already been commenting on them in the verses as you went over them, then you don't need to, um, to, to force anything here. But if you've been kind of moving quickly through the Bible verses, then you might pause for a moment. Some people, like God is the ruler, God is the lawgiver. Does that sound harsh? It, it, it could sound harsh. Um, imposing law. Does that sound harsh? The language, the words could, and in our own independent, self-centeredness, sin, you know, if we're uh, leaning more to our sinful nature, then we could prickle the, at the thought that God is telling us what to do. But as we will see, there needs to be a change in heart. And as new creations then we should be looking to the law that the Lord has given us and recognizing that it is good and good for us and from our good God. The next verse, now back, picking it back up, going around the circle. 1 Kings 8.32 God hears in heaven. God acts. God judges his servants. God condemns the wicked, bringing his way on his head. God justifies the righteous by giving to him according to his righteousness. I'm not going to talk about it because it's, we're going to get another summary that relates to that in the next sentence below these verses. Psalm 7:11 says God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. That's how my translation put it. I think uh, that was New King James. I'm not sure. Psalm 7 verses 9 through 10 are also really good right before that verse 11. Romans 2, 5 through 9. Oh, there's a lot here. So here's what I have noted. From verse 5, God has righteous judgment. From verse 6, God will render to each one according to his deeds, and he's going to give. Now I have put this in, um, not paraphrasing, but I've perhaps rearranged the way the phrases were stated. So God gives, according to verse 7, eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So just, just I got a comment on that from verse 7. It almost sounds like he gives eternal life to people because of their works, but the that's not come they're doing the right thing because they have a new heart so the patient continuance in doing good and seeking for glory honor and immortality 
is what you do when you have been changed and saved. So this is not salvation based on works. It is looking at the reward that someone will have when they're saved and they are saved. The evidence is there because of their works. So God will reward them. And then God renders to each one according to his deeds, giving uh, from verse 8, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. So that verse might have been the one that in scripture, in my version, was um, kind of turned, not turned around, but it said, to those who are self-seeking, not obeying the truth, obeying unrighteousness, God is going to give indignation. So um, I hope that that will not be a confusing verse for people. So the next sentence, ask someone to read this sentence. It is a summary of those three verses that we just went over. God carries out his law, distributing reward and punishment. He inflicts punishment for disobeying his law, and he distributes rewards for obeying his law. So there may be repetition here, but I feel like it is so important regarding the justice of God. We have got to learn that God's justice is a decision-making process, and he, he watches, and he, he's wise, and he knows people, and he knows their hearts, and he knows why they do what they do. And he rewards the good behavior when he sees that it. it's coming from the right heart. And he knows the wicked heart of an unbeliever. And if they stay that way forever, then that um, wickedness, the wicked behavior, and the wicked heart are rewarded with punishment. Reward is not great. He inflicts punishment for disobeying his law. Um, yeah, I have to say this real quick now, too. He inflicts punishment for disobeying his law. A Christian who is sinning has opportunities to repent, certainly can be forgiven. But if a Christian stays in sin, then God can and may give uh, consequences for that sin into that believer's life. He does that. And... That comes up in the book of Hebrews and other places in Scripture. All right, now we're going to go to the next um, half of this page, 46. And this has been mentioned previously, but now you're seeing it for yourself. When we look at the character of God, let's be aware that the righteousness of God is very closely associated with his justice. These terms can almost be used interchangeably. Here's a note. Both of the verses that you're going to look at and have ladies read have the words that you looked up in them. I mean, righteous and upright, my verses have them. Every translation might not have used exactly righteous or righteousness and upright. Oh, look, um, I didn't say that. Well, I'll tell you what I have in Psalm 97 too. <laughs> Cloud, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So that did not have the upright word in it. I was wrong. It has righteousness, which is tzaddik, and it has justice, which is mishpat. And we've looked that verse, that word up before. 
What does Psalm 119, 137 say? And I did turn to Psalm 1, I mean, 119, 137, but that's such a big number. And Psalm 119, some ladies might have ended up in verse 37. So if someone answers and it answer doesn't sound quite right, then they may have been reading from verse 37. Psalm 119, 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Now, this verse has all three of our words in it. I'm going to say it in the Hebrew. Tzadik, Yahweh, the Yeshar, Mishpateka. So hopefully you heard the Tzadik and Yahweh, Yeshar, and Mishpat. All those three, all those words are in this verse. So you looked up righteous. It's the Hebrew word tzaddik. The Hebrew definition is just, lawful, righteous. I have that this applies in many scenarios. It can be in government. It can be in one's individual cause. Um, it can be related to conduct, character. So um, it's also is righteous. What is right? What is correct? So this is doing the right thing. But it's, it's what is lawful. Um, on the top of page 47, upright. The Hebrew word is yashar. The Hebrew definition at its basic, uh, like root meaning is straight. Um, level could be, then we've got the word upright. Another correct. Um, this is doing what is right. It also can indicate equity and what is, I have the word convenient, but I don't think that means like, oh, hey, it's easy for you. I think it means appropriate. Like it's, that's a older application or definition of the word convenient. And this word also can be translated just. It is what is pleasing and proper and fitting. That can relates to the convenient word. So, yashar, what is straight, is not crooked. You can see how, like, upright is good, crooked is wrong. Crooked is the opposite of straight. So that's kind of how this idea of crooked becomes a word that we use for, the, for wickedness and evil and wrongdoing. And what's perverted, perverse, twisted, Instead of straight, yashar, the opposite of yashar would be perverted and crooked and twisted. In the box, if you've highlighted things that you like, then you can share them. Um, just, I would like to emphasize that the phrase, justice requires God to do this, is wrong. Because justice is not an outside force. It's not a force outside of God. God is the force, and God is the one who is just, and you could emphasize the last sentence and a half in the box. When God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. So, if someone were to say, if you heard someone say, justice requires God to do this, you need to go back to look at the character of God and remember he is the God who is just and he determines 
justice. Discuss and ask the ladies to share answers. Ask several ladies to share the next question. Considering what you've studied in this lesson and the previous one, please explain the justice of God. So talk about it. You can say, you know, if you don't feel like you're actually explaining it, just tell us what your takeaway is at this point in our lesson. That um, please explain the justice of God may, <laughs> some of them may be intimidating, but obviously I'm just wanting you to, to think about it, put things in your own words. So this is what I have, and I'd love to hear what you have, leaders. I would love to hear what the ladies' takeaway is. There's... Um, there's a lot that could be shared in this question. So I have from page 42 that Mishpat and Shafat indicate decision-making and leading and governing and rewarding and punishing. And in this, God does what is right. He makes the right decisions. He, in his governing and leading and decision-making, in, in his rewarding and in his punishing, he is not partial. He's going to do what is right for that person. And then I also have written, almost in all caps, God loves justice. And the simple definition of his justice is that um, justice is loving good and hating evil. So that's from the previous lesson. And then from page 46 and the top of 40, 47, God's Mishpat and Shafat are in keeping with his Tzedek and Yashar, his righteousness and uprightness. So um, his rules and his ways and his decisions are right. They are correct. They are straight and level and pleasing. They're proper. They're, they're what's good. And it's all because that's who he is. So that's what I'm adding into um, this today. Uh, the, the righteousness, the uprightness is his character. And it all, it, it's how he carries it all out. This next italicized paragraph is key and um, perhaps you should read it. You can ask someone to read it if you want to, but it ends with a question, so they might not want to read that question. We have learned that we are to love justice, and we have seen that this is a matter of the heart, not just learning the rules. And I think that's another thing to really uh, begin to get in our heads and hearts, that it is not just a rule following because that would be legalism and that takes your heart out of it so what kind of change must happen before people will love the lord love good and hate evil and you've done this lesson and you see now that this was really emphasizing salvation and the heart change so going over that once again as a reminder hopefully this will be an encouraging reminder to everyone of um, what the Lord has done in us, and this is if they have trusted him as their Savior. So what did the Lord promise he would do, according to Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 21? He promised to give one heart, to put a new spirit in them. And he's talking to the Israelites, and this is a promise to the Israelites. It does relate to the New Covenant, and uh, the New Covenant is applied to believers in the New Testament. Just tossed that in for you. 
So back to the question, Ezekiel 11, 19 through 21. Um, he promised to take the stony heart out and give a heart of flesh that they may walk in his statutes and be his people and he will be their God. Verse 21, but those whose hearts follow detestable things, he will recompense. So those two don't, who don't get the heart change and do they continue to do the wrong thing will be recompensed is a good word um that's the that's the rewarding of the negativity negative things what did jesus say is necessary to change a person according to john 3 5 and 6 one must be born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of god that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit so that is a preface what is the change that happens when one receives the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8, 9 through 11? I know there's a lot here. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. If you don't have the Spirit, then you do not belong to God. But if, and I have if written big in um, capital letters throughout my answer here, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this is a life-giving verse. The spirit gives life and the spirit gives life to our uh, mortal bodies right now. We must have the Holy Spirit to be alive now, otherwise, anybody around there walking around without Jesus is a dead person walking in flesh that has blood running through it and has mortal life but does not have spiritual life. At the top of page 48, with a new heart, because you've been given life by the Holy Spirit, you can love the Lord and love justice. And you can live according to God's righteousness. What does Romans 6.13 tell us to do? Don't present your body as an instrument of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Present your members as instruments of righteousness. So we're saying, thank you, Lord, you've given me life. Thank you that by your spirit I can obey you. Here I am. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to live according to your righteousness your righteous ways and this is the heart of the issue this is the solution to the problem of injustice it must start with every individual recognizing their own need for internal change so that is what we can pray for the world today that individuals will recognize their need for internal change and that they will understand that Injustice comes about because of sin, and may they ask for um, forgiveness for that sin, for freedom from sin, and depend on Jesus to save them. The heart has to change, and only the Spirit of God can make that change. Why did Micah say that he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord, according to Micah 3, 8 and 9? 3, 8 is really clear. He said that he was to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel 
his sin. Not sure why I left nine in there, but it just continues that the leaders and rulers abhor justice. So that was the contrast. But verse nine doesn't really say that it was a part of why. So we see that Micah began his messages with a loud call to the people to listen. Three times. Listen, listen, listen. The call to listen is an opportunity to respond with repentance. The offer is always available. How did Peter describe it in Acts 2.38? Peter said, Repent, be baptized in Jesus for remission of sin, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just one more note. There are no works in here. The act comes by faith. You repent in faith, believing that God will forgive you of your sins. You are baptized uh, for the remission of sin. That is, uh, the baptism doesn't forgive you, but it is evidence that you believe that Jesus has forgiven you and gives you new life. And then um, all this happens at the moment of salvation. You don't have to be baptized, immersed in water to get the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have a baptism of the Holy Spirit to get the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13, when you believe the message of the truth, you receive the Holy Spirit and you're sealed with him. So again, this lesson in the middle of this next italicized paragraph was to make sure that we understand that the first action needed is to get a new heart that the Lord says we need. That's how, that's the first action that is required to address systemic injustice. So again, that's what we need to pray for, for the world today. And then I also just wanted to reiterate and make sure ladies are learning in this study to be aware what's in the next italicized sentence. Some people in the world today use Bible words and spiritual concepts to address social issues. And I have heard some calls for repentance, but they weren't calls for the repentance that the Lord wants. So please be discerning as you listen to people in the world talk about justice and how you get justice and what the words are that they use. Make sure that if they're using Bible words, that they're using them in the right context and for what God means about justice. Okay, so that was a look at the justice of God. And now we will look at the injustices of wolves and snakes. That's my transition into the next lesson. That was a look at the justice of God. And now we'll look at the injustices of wolves and snakes. The leaders in Jerusalem who were supposed to be shepherding God's people behaved more like wolves than shepherds. And the prophets were the snakes. Um. Oh, leaders, I think that you should just say this for review and to keep it quick and just so that it's uh, narrowed down very specifically. According to Micah 2, 12, and 13, God's people are described as sheep. That's the simple answer I'm looking for right there. So just say that. <laughs> and then um, ask someone and get started with the next questions. According to Micah 3, verse 2, how were the leaders of Israel like wolves 
as they carried out injustice. They tore the skin off the Lord's people. They tore the flesh from the bones. In verse 3, how were they worse than wolves? They were eating the flesh, breaking bones in pieces, chopping them up like meat in a pot. And this is where they are. The Micah is describing the leaders as cannibals. So that's how they're worse than wolves. Micah 3, 2 and 3 is a graphic illustration showing just how ruthless the leaders were. Another way to um, talk about this is that they were cruel, they were brutal, they were inhumane. That's how the leaders were treating the people of Judah. Wow. 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 It's just painful to think about. And it is graphic. It is harsh language. I think, you know, Micah must have, I mean, God led him to use that language, but they must have needed shock treatment. Okay, on page 50, go around the circle to answer this um, next question. Throughout his prophecy, Micah names the crimes of the leaders. Note them below. And I was in Micah 3, and I answered my first question as if it was Micah 3, verse 2. And I was like, why am I writing this again? And I was like, oh, I've got the wrong verse. So again, Micah 2, 2, we turned back a chapter. Uh, they were to covet fields. I mean, not they were not to do that. <laughs> they did that. They coveted fields. They seized them. They oppressed men and their inheritances. The, the inheritance in their tribe of Israel and that land and that inheritance was a God-given inheritance. Micah 2, 8 and 9, the leaders acted as enemies. They stripped the robes from those who passed by trustingly. They drove women from their homes. Children were, I have in quotes, robbed of God's splendor. Micah 3, 9, the heads and rulers detested justice. They made crooked that which was straight. Micah 3, 11, the heads gave judgment for a bribe. The priests teach for a price. The prophets practice divination for money. Micah 7, 2, the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They lie in wait for blood, each hunting the other with a net. He's still talking about the leaders and talking to them. Micah 7, 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desires of his soul. They weave it together. That's chapter 7. We'll come back to these verses, but it couldn't, I just, when it says their hands are on evil to do it well, um, you know, it's like priding themselves on how evil they could be or how, and it's just, it's hard to say how well they could do the bad thing. Hmm. According to Micah 3, 4, what justice of God will be carried out against the leaders who committed injustices against the people? What justice of God, what decision, what verdict, what recompense of God will be carried out against the leaders who committed injustices? 
For when those leaders cry to the Lord, he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they've made their deeds evil. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to the wicked leaders. What principle of judgment is declared in Proverbs 21, 13? The Lord says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. In Micah 3, 5, how did the false prophets who were just as corrupt as the leaders, abused their position. So we're shifting to the prophets now. The prophets led the people of the Lord astray. The prophets said, peace, when they have something to eat. But they declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Well, this is explained on the next page. So if everybody's confusing, now hopefully they've done their homework and they've read ahead now to the top of page 51. So in the middle, well, the New Living Translation, they've read these things, but the prophets were promising peace for those who gave them food. That sounds almost like in the New Living Translation, that phrase, you promise peace for those who give you food. That almost sounds nice. But what the Micah is saying when he used that Hebrew verb, nashak, to bite, when they bite with their teeth, they proclaim peace. So just picture them requiring payment. And when they get paid, they give a prophecy of peace in the land. Everything's going to be good. These prophets, false prophets, were snakes. When people did not pay them what they wanted, the prophets foretold of war, calamity, and trouble instead of peace. So these prophets were deceivers. They did not have a word from the Lord. How did Micah begin his pronouncement against the false prophets? Thus says the Lord. And um, I would suggest that you ask someone to read this next paragraph. Micah truly spoke the word of the Lord. We've already noted that he did so because he was empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. Because of the forcefulness and dramatic prophetic messages, his audience may have perceived him as an ecstatic egomaniac gone mad. That's kind of why I wanted you to someone to read this again, just to be reminded of how, um, how extravagant Micah's messages were. And he was... Speaking up loudly and clearly, remember that he was filled with power, the Spirit of the Lord. He was filled with justice and might. So even though the audience, and we read in a previous lesson, the audience had said, stop your preaching. So still the prophet maintained his mission. He had to tell Israel of their sins and seek to establish God's justice among his people. You can have someone read that or you can read it and have fun with it yourself. According to Micah 3, 6, and 7, what justice of God would be carried out against the false prophets who committed injustices against the people? So again, what decision, what verdict, what recompense, what judgment of God? All I'm, I'm thinking about all those things as I use that word justice of God. What would God do? It will be night to them with no vision darkness, no divination, 
The sun will go down on the prophets. The day be black over them. The seers will be disgraced. The viners put to shame. They will cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So here we see that the false prophets had been relying on divination. You looked up that word, the Hebrew word kasam. The definition that I found is it's to determine by lot or magical scroll to divine. It is soothsaying. And um, Balaam did this. False prophets of Israel did this. And it is prohibited, which you see in the next verses. What was God's command regarding divination in Deuteronomy 18, 10, and 14? Well, don't do it, right? There shall not be found among you anyone who makes a son or daughter pass through the fire, who practices witchcraft, soothsaying, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. And then 14 says that um, nations do this stuff, but the Lord has not appointed Israel to this. Nations listen to divination and witchcraft and omens and those things. So this was happening way back. It's been happening. And Israel was not to get involved in it. Well, we have seen despicable leaders and dreadful prophets. God carried out his judgment on them, but people today repeat the same evils against the unaware and other evils, right? So I have three personal application questions that we're ending our lesson with, and we should talk about them, but you can preface them by saying, you know, let's talk about these application questions you don't have to share something uncomfortable and personal but let's talk about how we can be aware and do the right thing and and avoid doing the wrong thing so we want to check ourselves is there any way that we use our own position or power to take advantage of someone else what might we do that is taking advantage of someone else? How can we be careful not to do this? Oh, you leaders may want to even reword the question in a way that you ask it and it is maybe not as direct as what I put in the workbook because in the workbooks, it it is direct on purpose for, for ladies, for all of us to look at ourselves. But once we get to the group, it's fine to um, answer them more generally. Um, so I did pause and think about, you know, position and power and taking advantage of someone and, and how can I be careful not to do this? Be aware that we all probably have a tendency to use our position, whatever it is, to, there's a temptation to do that. So what do we do instead? Be humble Serve. Don't take advantage. Don't take something from someone. Give to them. Um, don't expect special treatment. Um, you know, give that special treatment. Do you? Next question. Do you look for answers to your problems in places or from people who will give you false hope? So, do you look for just a word of hope, like just tell me something that I want to hear? 
do you, does anybody go out looking for that? There may be a place of desperation and some just don't want to hear. Um, uh, actually, do you say things like, don't tell me anything bad. I don't want to hear any bad news. I don't know. that That's something to consider. Do you look for someone who will just say what you want them to say? Or do you seek counsel from someone who will speak God's biblical truth to you? Um, if you're pondering something troubled and you want to talk to someone, do who do you think about? Do you think about going to someone who's you know, going to say what you want to hear? You've seen it in their life and how it turned out in their life, and you just want it to be like that. So you'll go and get their advice because you want what they've got. Another issue in the question here, the second question, could be that depending on the maturity or immaturity of someone's faith, and their faith may be, may be tested, they may have weak faith, they may lean towards anxiety and worry, and so they may not want to hear anything negative because they just can't handle it. So that is another thing to be aware of if, if there's someone in the group that is in that place with weak faith. We want to encourage their faith. And um, I had another thought that just disappeared. So I can't go any further with comments about that one. Last question. Are you willing to be used by the Lord to stand up against injustice and declare what is true and right? And how can you do this? And that question makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it makes me feel like, okay, how's God going to get me out of my comfort zone? But when I, I have underlined the phrase, stand up against injustice, and I have noted that I can only do this in the strength of the Lord. That's what we see in Micah. He did it because of the Spirit of the Lord empowering him. So I'm not bold to confront something in my own strength and in my own self. Um, so we must depend on the Lord to lead us to do this when he tells us to. And so you have the study of Micah in your hands because the Lord led me to write it. <laughs> and it is... Um, it's out of my comfort zone. It still is. And I'm looking forward to what is going to continue to be learned through this study and how we will be encouraged and corrected and our lives will reflect the justice and righteousness and uprightness of God and his good word. And I am, I am very glad to be pondering and reflecting repeatedly on the justice of God. May that be what overflows in our lives. Well, thanks again, ladies, for handling the Word of God appropriately. I hope that you will have a great discussion of these two lessons.